Section 11 of His Family by Ernest Poole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. His Family by Ernest Poole. Chapter 34. But the quiet was dark to Roger now. Each night he spent in his study alone, for instinctively, he felt the need of being by himself for a while, of keeping away from his children, out of whose lives he divined that other events would soon come forth to use up the last of the strength that was in him. And Roger grew angry with the world. Why couldn't it leave a man alone, an old man in a silent house, alive for him with memories? Repeatedly in such hours, his mind would go groping backward into the years behind him. What a long and winding road, half buried in the jungle, dim, almost impenetrable, made up of millions of small events, small worries, plans, and dazzling dreams, with which his days had all been filled. But the more he recalled, the more certain he grew that he was right. Life had never been like this. The world had never come smashing into his house, his very family, with its dirty, teeming tenements, its schools, its prisons, electric chairs, its feverish rush for money, its luxuries, its scandals. These things had existed in the world, but remote and never real, mere things which he had read about. War? Did he not remember wars that had come and gone in Europe? But they hadn't come into his home like this, first making him poor when he needed money for Edith and her children, then plunging Deborah into a struggle that might very probably ruin her life, and now taking Laura and filling her mind with thoughts of pagan living. Why was every man, woman, and child these days bound up in the whole life of the world? What would come of it all? A new day out of this deafening night? Maybe so. But for him it would come too late. What have I left to live for? One night, with a sigh, he went to his desk, lit a cigar, and laid his hand upon a pile of letters which had been mounting steadily. It was made up of Laura's bills, the ones she had not remembered. Send them after her to Rome for that Italian fellow to pay? No, it could not be thought of. Roger turned to his dwindling bank account. He was not yet making money. He was still losing a little each week. But he would not cut expenses. To the few who were left in his employ, to be turned away would mean dire need. And angrily he determined that they should not starve to pay Laura's bills. The world for the strong, hey? Not in my office. In Rome or Berlin or Vienna, all right, but not over here. Grimly, when he had made out the checks, Roger eyed his balance. By spring he would be penniless, and he had no one to turn to now, no rich young son-in-law who could aid. He set himself doggedly to the task of forcing up his business, and meanwhile in the evenings he tried with Edith to get back upon their former footing. To do this was not easy at first, for his bitterness still rankled deep. When you were in trouble I took you in, but 
When she was in trouble, you turned her out, as you turned out John before her. In the room again vacated, young George had been reinstalled. One night Edith found her father there, looking in through the open doorway, and the look on his massive face was hard. "'Better have the room disinfected again,' he muttered, when he saw her. He turned and went slowly down the stairs, and she was late for dinner that night. But Edith had her children, and as he watched her night by night, hearing their lessons patiently, reading them fairy stories, and holding them smilingly in her arms, the old appeal of her motherhood regained its hold upon him. One evening, when the clock struck nine, putting down his paper, he suggested gruffly, "'Well, daughter, how about some chess?' Edith flushed a little. "'Why, yes, dear, I'd be glad to.' She rose and went to get the board. So the games were resumed, and part, at least, of their old affection came to life. But only a part. It could never be quite the same again. And though he saw little of Deborah, slowly, almost unawares to them both, she assumed the old place she had had in his home, as the one who had been right there in the house through all the years since her mother had died, the one who had helped and never asked help, keeping her own troubles to herself. He fell back into his habit of going before dinner to his daughter's bedroom door, to ask whether she would be home that night. At one such time, getting no response, and thinking Deborah was not there, he opened the door part way to make sure, and he saw her at her dresser, staring at herself in the glass, rigid as though in a trance. Later in the dining-room he heard her step upon the stairs. She came in quietly and sat down, and as soon as dinner was over she said her good-nights and left the house. But when she came home at midnight he was waiting up for her. He had foraged in the kitchen, and on his study-table he had set out some supper. While she sat there eating, her father watched her from his chair. "'Things going badly in school?' he inquired. "'Yes,' she replied. There was silence. "'What's wrong?' "'Tonight we had a line of mothers reaching out into the street. They had come for food and coal, but we had to send most of them home empty-handed. Some of them cried, and one of them fainted. She's to have a baby soon.' "'Can't you get any money uptown?' he asked. "'I have,' she answered grimly. "'I've been a beggar, heaven knows, on every friend I can think of, "'and I've kept a press agent hard at work "'trying to make the public see that Belgium is right here in New York.' "'She stopped and went on with her supper. "'But it's a bad time for work like mine,' she continued presently. If we're to keep it going, we must above all keep it cheap. That's the keynote these days. Keep everything cheap, at any cost, so that men can expensively kill one another. Her voice had a bitter ring to it. You try to talk peace and they bowl you over with facts on the need of preparedness for the defense of your country. And that doesn't appeal to me very much. I want a bigger preparedness for the defense of the whole world for democracy and human rights, no matter who the people are. 
I'd like to train every child to that. What do you mean? her father asked. To teach him what his life can be, she replied in a hard, quivering tone. A fight? Oh, yes, so long as he lives, and even with guns, if it must be so. But a fight for all the people on earth, and a world so full of happy lives that men will think hard before ever again letting themselves be led by the nose into war and death for a place in the sun. She rose from a chair with a weary smile. Here I am making a speech again. I've made so many lately, it's become a habit. I'm tired out, Dad. I'm going to bed. Her father looked at her anxiously. You're seeing things out of proportion, he said. You've worked so hard, you're getting stale. You ought to get out of it for a while. I can't, she answered sharply. You don't know. You don't even guess how it takes every hour. All the demands. Where is Alan these days? Working, was her harsh reply, trying to keep his hospital going with half its staff. The woman who was backing him is giving her money to Belgium instead. Do you see much of him every day? Let's drop it, shall we? All right, my dear. And they said good night. In the meantime, in the house, Edith had tried to scrimp and save, but it was very difficult. Her children had so many needs, they were all growing up so fast. Each month brought fresh demands on her purse, and the fund from the sale of her belongings had been used up long ago. Her sole resource was the modest allowance her father gave her for running the house, and she had not asked him for more. She had put off trouble from month to month, but one evening early in March, when he gave her the regular monthly check, she said hesitatingly, I'm very sorry, Father dear, but I'm afraid we'll need more money this month. He glanced up from his paper. What's the matter? She gave him a forced little smile, and her father noticed the grey in her hair. Oh, nothing in particular. Goodness knows I've tried to keep down expenses, but... Well, we're a pretty large household, you know. Yes, said Roger kindly. I know. Are the month's bills in? Yes. Let me see them. She brought him the bills, and he looked relieved. Not so many, he ventured. No, but they're large. Why, look here, Edith, he said abruptly. These are bills for two months, some for three, even four. I know. That's just the trouble. I couldn't meet them at the time. Why didn't you tell me? Laura was here, and I didn't want to bother you. You had enough on your mind as it was. I've done the best I could, Father dear. I've sold everything, you know, but I've about come to the end of my rope. And her manner said clearly, I've done my part. I'm only a woman. I'll have to leave the rest to you. I see, I see. And Roger knitted his heavy brows. I presume I can get it somehow. This would play the very devil with things. Father, Edith's voice was low. Why don't you let Deborah help you? She's done very little, it seems to me, compared to the size of her salary. She can't do any more than she's doing now, was his decisive answer. 
Edith looked at him, her color high. She hesitated, then burst out. I saw her checkbook the other day. She had left it on the table. She's spending thousands every month. That's not her own money, Roger said. No, it's money she gets for her fads, her work for those tenement children. She can get money enough for them. He flung out his hand. Leave her out of this, please. Very well, father, just as you say. And she sat there hurt and silent, while again he looked slowly through the bills. He jotted down figures and added them up. They came to a bit over nine hundred dollars. Soon Deborah's key was heard in the door, and Roger scowled the deeper. She came into the room, but he did not look up. He heard a voice. What's the matter, Edith? Bills for the house. Oh, and Deborah came to her father. May I see what's the trouble, dear? I'd rather you wouldn't. It's nothing, he growled. He wanted her to keep out of this. Why shouldn't she see? Edith tartly inquired. Deborah is living here, and before I came she ran the house. In her place I should certainly want to know. Deborah was already glancing rapidly over the bills. Why, Edith, she exclaimed, most of these bills go back for months. Why didn't you pay them when they were due? Simply because I hadn't the money. You've had the regular monthly amount. That didn't last long. Why didn't you tell us? Laura was here. Deborah gave a shrug of impatience, and Roger saw how tired she was, her nerves on edge from her long day. Never mind about it now, he put in. What a pity, Deborah muttered. If we had been told, we could have cut down. I don't agree with you, Edith rejoined. I have already done that myself. I've done nothing else. Have the servants been paid? Her sister asked. No, they haven't. Since when? Three months. Roger got up and walked the room. Deborah tried to speak quietly. I can't quite see where the money has gone. Can't you? Then look at my checkbook. And Edith produced it with a glare. Her sister turned over a few of the stubs. What's this item? Where? Here, a hundred and twenty-two dollars. The dentist, Edith answered. Not extravagant. It is for five children. I see, said Deborah. And this? Bedding, was Edith's sharp response. A mattress and more blankets. I found there weren't half enough in the house. You burned John's, didn't you? Naturally. All at once both grew ashamed. Let's be sensible, Deborah said. We must do something, Edith, and we can't till we're certain where we stand. Very well. They went on more calmly and took up the items one by one. Deborah finished and was silent. Well, father, what's to be done? she asked. I don't know, he said shortly. Somehow or other, Deborah said, we've got to cut our expenses down. I'm afraid that's impossible, Edith rejoined. I've already cut as much as I can. So did I in my school, said her sister, and when I thought I had reached the end, I called in an expert, and he showed me ways of saving I had never dreamed of. What kind of expert would you advise here? Edith's small lip curled in scorn. Domestic science, naturally. I have a woman who does nothing else. She shows women in their homes just how to make money count the most. What women and what home? Tenements? Yes, 
She's one of my teachers. Thank you, said Edith indignantly, but I don't care to have my children brought down to tenement standards. I didn't mean to have them, but I know she would show you a great many things you can buy for less. I'm afraid I shouldn't agree with her. Why not, Edith? Because she knows only tenement children, nothing of children bred like mine. Deborah drew a quick, short breath. Her brows drew tight, and she looked away. She bit her lip, controlled herself. Very well, I'll try again. This house is plenty large enough, so that by a little crowding we could make room for somebody else. And I know a teacher in one of my schools who'd be only too glad. Take in a boarder, you mean? Yes, I do. We've got to do something. No! Deborah threw up her hands. All right, Edith, I'm through, she said. Now, what do you propose? I can try to do without Hannah again. That will be hard on all of us, but I guess you'll have to, so it seems. But, unfortunately, that won't be enough. Edith's face grew tenser. I'm afraid it will have to be, just now. I've had all I can stand for one night. I'm sorry, Deborah answered. For a moment they confronted each other, and Edith's look said to Deborah plainly, You're spending thousands, thousands on those tenement children. You can get money enough for them, but you won't raise a hand to help with mine. And as plainly, Deborah answered, My children are starving, shivering, freezing. What do yours know about being poor? Two mothers, each with a family, and each one baffled, brought to bay. There was something so insatiable in each angry mother's eyes. I think you'd better leave this to me, said Roger very huskily, and both his daughters turned with a start, as though in their bitter absorption they had forgotten his presence there. Both flushed, and now the glances of all three in that room avoided each other, for they felt how sordid it had been. Deborah turned to her sister. I'm sorry, Edith, she said again, and this time there were tears in her eyes. So am I, said Edith unsteadily, and in a moment she left the room. Deborah stood watching her father. I'm ashamed of myself, she said. Well, shall we talk it over? No, he replied, I can manage it somehow, Deborah, and I prefer that you leave it to me. Roger went into his study and sank grimly into his chair. Yes, it had been pretty bad. It had been ugly, ominous. He took paper and pencil and set to work. How he had come to hate this job of wrestling with figures. Of the five thousand dollars borrowed in August, he had barely a thousand left. The first semi-annual interest was due next week and must be paid. The balance would carry them through March and on well into April. By that time he hoped to be making money, for business was better every week. But what of this nine hundred dollars in debt? Half at least must be paid at once. Lower and lower he sank in his chair. But a few moments later his blunt, heavy visage cleared, and with a little sigh of relief he put away his papers turned out the lights, and went upstairs. The dark house felt friendly and comforting now. In his room he opened the safe in the corner where his collection of curious rings had lain unnoticed for many months. He drew out a tray, 
sat down by the light and began to look them over at first only small inanimate objects gradually as from tray after tray they glittered duskily up at him they began to yield their riches as they had so often done before spanish french italian bohemian hungarian russian and arabian rings small and rings enormous religious rings and magic rings poison rings some black with age for all his careful polishing again they stole deep into roger's imagination with suggestions of the many hands that had worn them through the centuries of women kneeling in old churches couples in dark crooked streets adventures love hate jealousy youth and fire dreams and passion at last he remembered why he was here he thought of possible purchasers he knew so many dealers but he knew too that the war had played the devil with them as with everyone else still he thought of several who would find it hard to resist the temptation he would see them to-morrow one by one and get them bidding haggling roger frowned disgustedly no help for it though and it was a relief it would bring a truce in his house for a time but the truce was brief on the afternoon when he sold his collection roger came home all out of sorts he had been forced to haggle long it had been a mean inglorious day one of the brightest paths in his life had ended in a pigsty but at least he had bought some peace in his home women 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 he shut the front door with a slam and went up to his room for a little rest a little of what he had paid for on the stairs he passed young betsy and he startled the girl by the sudden glare of reproach he bestowed upon her savagely he told himself he was no feminist that night the brief talk he had with edith was far from reassuring with no deborah there to wound her pride edith quickly showed herself friendly to her father but when he advised her to keep her nurse she at once refused to consider it i want you to he persisted with an anxious note in his voice he had tried life without hannah here and he did not care to try it again it is already settled father i sent her away this morning then you get her right back he exclaimed but edith's face grew obstinate i don't care to give deborah she replied another chance to talk as she did roger looked at her gloomily you will though he was thinking you too have only just begun let any little point arise which a couple of men would settle off-hand and you two will get together and go it there'll be no living in the house with deepening displeasure he watched the struggle between them go on sometimes it seemed to roger there was not a topic he could bring up which would not in some way bring on a clash one night in desperation he proposed the theatre i'm afraid we can't afford it said edith glancing at deborah and she had the same answer again and again for the requests her children made if they involved but the smallest expense no dear i'm afraid we can't afford that she would say gently with a sigh and under this constant pressure these nightly little thrusts and jabs 
Deborah would grow rigid with annoyance and impatience. For heaven's sake, Edith, she burst out one night when the children had gone to their lessons, can you think of nothing on earth except your own little family? Here it comes again, thought Roger, scowling into his paper. He heard Edith's curt reply. No, I can't. Not nowadays. Nobody else seems to think of them. You mean that I don't? Do you? Yes, I'm thinking of George. Do you want him killed in the trenches, in a war with Germany or Japan? Are you utterly mad? demanded Edith. No, I'm awake, my eyes are open, but yours are shut so tight, my dear, you can't see what has happened. You know this war has made us poor, and your own life harder, but that's all. The big thing it has done you know nothing about. Suppose you teach me, Edith said, with a prim, provoking little smile. Deborah turned on her angrily. It has shown that all such mothers as you are out of date and have got to change, that we're bound together all over the world, whether we like it or whether we don't, and that if we want to keep out of war, we've got to do it by coming right out of our own little homes. And thinking, Edith, thinking. Votes for women, Edith said. Deborah looked at her, rose with a shrug. All right, Edith, I give up. Thank you. I'm not worth it. You'd better go back to your office now and go on with your work of saving the world and use every hour of your time and every dollar you possess. I'll stay here and look after my children. Deborah had gone into the hall. Roger, buried deep in his paper, heard the heavy street door close. He looked up with a feverish sigh and saw at the open door of his study George and Betsy standing, curious, solemn, and wide-eyed. How long had they been listening? Chapter 35 There came a season of sleet and rain when the smaller children were shut indoors, and it was hard to keep them amused. They did not look well, and Edith was worried. She had always dreaded the spring and to carry her family safely through she had taken them in former years to atlantic city for two weeks that of course was impossible now trouble was bound to come she thought and it was not long in coming bobby who was ten years old and went to school with his brother george caught a wretched cold one day edith popped him into bed but despite her many precautions he gave his cold to Bruce and Tad. Suppose I ask Alan Baird to come, Deborah suggested. He's wonderful with children, you know. Edith curtly accepted his services. She felt he had been sent for to prevent her getting Dr. Lake, but she said nothing. She would wait. Through long hard days and longer nights she slaved upstairs. All Deborah's proffers of aid she declined. She kept Elizabeth home from school to help her with the many meals, the medicines, and the endless tasks of keeping her lively patients in bed. She herself played with them by the hour, while the ache in her head was a torment. At night she was up at the slightest sound. Heavy circles came under her eyes. Within a few days her baby, Bruce, had developed pneumonia. 
That evening after dinner, while Deborah was sitting with Roger in the living room, she heard her sister coming downstairs. She listened acutely, and glancing around, she saw that Roger was listening too. Edith passed the doorway and went on down the hall, where they heard her voice at the telephone. She came back and looked in at the door. "'I've called Dr. Lake,' she said. "'I've just taken Bruce's temperature. It's a hundred and five and two-fifths.' Deborah glanced up with a start. "'Oh, Edith,' she said softly. Her sister turned and looked at her. "'I ought to have had him before,' she said. "'When he comes, please bring him right up to the room.' And she hurried upstairs. "'Pshaw!' breathed Roger anxiously. He had seen Bruce an hour ago, and the sight of the tiny boy, so exhausted and so still, had given him a sudden scare. Could it be that this would happen? Roger rose and walked the floor. Edith was right, he told himself. They should have had Lake long before, and they would have, by George, if it had not been for Deborah's interference. He glanced at her indignantly. "'Bringing in Baird to save money, hey? "'Well, it was just about time they stopped saving money on their own flesh and blood. "'What had Bruce to do with tenement babies? "'But he had had tenement treatment, just that. "'Deborah had had her way at last with Edith's children, "'and one of them might have to pay with its life.' "'Again Roger glared at his silent daughter, "'and now, even in his excited state, he noticed how still and rigid she was, how unnatural the look she bent on the book held tightly in her hands. Still Deborah said nothing. She could feel her father's anger. Both he and Edith held her to blame. She felt herself in a position where she could not move a hand. She was stunned and could not think clearly. A vivid picture was in her mind, vivid as a burning flame, which left everything else in darkness. It was of Bruce, one adorable baby, fighting for breath. What would I do if he were mine? When the doctor arrived, she took him upstairs, and then came down to her father. Well, he demanded. I don't know. We'll have to wait. And they both sat silent. At last they heard a door open and close, and presently steps coming down the stairs. Roger went out into the hall. Come right in here, doctor, won't you? I want to hear about this myself. Very well, sir. And Lake entered the room, with Edith close behind him. He took no notice of anyone. Write this down, he said to her, and give it to the nurse when she comes. A heavy man of middle age, with curious dark, impassive eyes, that at times showed an ironic light. Lake was a despot in a world of mothers to whom his word was law. He was busy to-night with no time to waste, and his low, harsh voice now rattled out orders which Edith wrote down in feverish haste, an hourly schedule, night and day. He named a long list of things needed at once. Night nurse will be here in an hour, he ended. Day nurse, tomorrow, 8 a.m. Get sleep yourself, and plenty of it. As it is, you're not fit to take care of a cat. Abruptly he turned and left the room. Edith followed. The street door closed, and in a moment after that his motor was off with a muffled roar. Edith came back 
picked up her directions and turned to her sister. "'Will you go up and sit with Bruce? I'll telephone the druggist,' she said. Deborah went to the sick room. Bruce's small face, peaked and grey in the soft dim light, turned as she entered and came to the bed. "'Well, dear,' she whispered. The small boy's eyes, large and heavy with fever, looked straight into hers. "'Sick,' said the baby hoarsely. The next instant he tossed up his hands and went through a spasm, trying to breathe. It passed, he relaxed a little, and again stared solemnly at his aunt. "'Sick,' he repeated. "'Wowie sick.' Deborah sat silent. The child had another fight for his breath, and this time, as he did so, Deborah's body contracted, too. A few moments later Edith came in. Deborah returned downstairs, and for over an hour she sat by herself. Roger was in his study. Betsy and George had gone to bed. The night nurse arrived and was taken upstairs. Still Deborah's mind felt numb and cold. Instinctively, again and again, it kept groping toward one point. If I had a baby as sick as that, what would I do? What would I do? When the doorbell rang again, she frowned, rose quickly, and went to the door. It was Alan. Alan, come in here, will you? she said, and he followed her into the living room. What is it? he inquired. Bruce is worse. Oh, I'm sorry. Why didn't Edith let me know? She had lake tonight, said Deborah. He knitted his brows in annoyance, then smiled. Well, I don't mind that, he replied. I'm rather glad. She'll feel easier now. What did he tell her? He seemed to consider it serious by the number of things he ordered. Two nurses, of course. Yes, day and night. Deborah was silent a moment. I may be wrong, she continued, but I still feel sure the child will live. But I know it means a long, hard fight. The expense of it all will be heavy. Well, whatever it is, I'll meet it, she said. Father can't. He has reached the end. But even if he could help, still, it wouldn't make much difference in what I've been deciding, because when I was with Bruce tonight, I saw, as clear as I see you now, that if I had a child like that, as sick as that, I'd sacrifice anything, everything, schools, tenement children, thousands. I'd use the money which should have been theirs, and the time and attention. I'd shut them all out. They could starve if they liked. I'd be like Edith, exactly. I'd center on this one child of mine. Deborah turned her eyes to his, stern and gleaming with her pain, and she continued sharply. But I don't mean to shut those children out, and so it's clear as day to me that I can't ever marry you. That baby tonight was the finishing stroke. She made a quick, restless movement. Baird leaned slowly forward. Her hands in her laps were clenched together. He took them both and held them hard. No, this isn't clear, he said. I can feel it in your hands. This is nerves. This is the child upstairs. This is Edith in the house. This is school, the end of the long winter's strain. No, it's what I've decided. But this is the wrong decision, Alan answered steadily. It's made. Not yet. It isn't. Not tonight. We won't talk of it now. You're in no condition. Deborah's wide, sensitive lips began to quiver suddenly. 
We will talk of it now, or never at all. I want it settled, done with. I've had enough. It's killing me. No, was Alan's firm reply. In a few days things will change. Edith's child will be out of danger. Your other troubles will clear away. But what of next winter? And the next? What of Edith's children? Can't you see what a load they are on my father? Can't you see he's aging fast? Suppose he dies, Baird answered. It will leave them on your hands. You'll have these children, won't you? Whether you marry or whether you don't. And so will I. I'm their guardian. That won't be the same, she cried, as having children of our own. Look into my eyes. I'm looking. Her own eyes were bright with tears. Why are you always so afraid of becoming a mother? Alan asked. In his gruff, low voice was a fierce appeal. It's this obsession in your mind that you'll be a mother like Edith. And that's absurd. You never will. You say you're afraid of not keeping school the first thing in your life. But you always do, and you always will. You're putting it ahead of me now. Yes, I can put it ahead of you. But I couldn't put it ahead of my child. He winced at this, and she noticed it. Because you are strong, and the child would be weak. The child would be like Bruce tonight. Are you sure if you marry you must have a child? Yes, she answered huskily. If I married you I'd want a child, and that want in me would grow and grow until it made both of us wretched. I'm that kind of woman. That's why my work has succeeded so far, because I've a passion for children. They're not my work. They're my very life. She bowed her head. Her mouth set hard. But so are you, she whispered, and since this is settled, Alan, what do you think? Shall we try to go on, working together side by side, seeing each other every day as we have been doing all these months? Rather hard on both of us, don't you think? I do. I feel that way, she said. Again her features quivered. The kind of feeling I have for you would make that rather difficult. His grip tightened on her hands. I won't give you up, he said. Later you will change your mind. He left the room and went out of the house. Deborah sat rigid. She trembled and the tears came. She brushed them angrily away. Struggling to control herself, presently she grew quieter. Frowning, with her clear gray eyes intently staring before her, she did not see her father come into the doorway. He stopped with a jerk at the sight of her face. "'What's the matter?' he asked. She started. "'Nothing's the matter. How is Bruce?' "'I don't know. Who went out a few minutes ago?' "'Alan Baird,' she answered. "'Oh, you explained to him, of course, about Lake.' "'Yes, he understands,' she said. "'He won't come here after this.' Roger looked at her sharply, wondering just what she meant. He hesitated. No, he would wait. Good night, he said, and went upstairs. End of section 11. Recording by James Carson.